0: at the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We celebrated the Lord's Supper together here around this table. And today, we look at the second of these ordinances that I'm going to call the formal ordinances. These are the two ordinances that we recognize in the church. The ordinance of the Lord's Supper and the ordinance of baptism. But there are what we could, what we could think of as informal ordinances. Still things that Jesus commanded us to do. Things that Jesus gave us to do. But things that we have not formalized the way, same way in which we have formalized the Lord's Supper and baptism. So we're going to be, um, we're going to be back in Acts. I know we read a little from Acts um, uh, from that story about Philip and the Ethiopian uh, eunuch. Um, but we're going to turn a little earlier to Acts this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. I'd encourage you to turn there in, uh, in your scriptures if you have it. If you don't, there's a black um, pew Bible there in front of you. And let me encourage you, if you do not have a copy of the Word of God, to call your own to to take one of those black hardcover Bibles with you this morning as our gift to you. So we are in the book of Acts. We're in the book of Acts chapter 2. We're going to be starting with the 37th verse. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to the Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Repent, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear gracious God, as we to study your word this morning as we look at the story of Peter addressing the crowd at Pentecost. God, I pray that your spirit would descend on us and would pierce our hearts the same way it descended on the disciples and pierced the hearts of the crowd 2,000 years ago. May your spirit enliven us. May your spirit quicken us. May your spirit sustain us as we study your word. And God, my prayer, as always, is that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So we start when they heard this. Now, sometimes when we pick up Scripture and we start reading in the middle of a chapter, we we pick up and we're reading in the middle of a story. Sometimes even when we're at the beginning of a chapter, right, we end up reading in the middle of the story. And so sometimes we come across sentences that say things like, when they heard this, and, and any good English teacher will tell you context clues. You've got to stop, back up a little bit, and see who they and this are. I got a really good score on my ACT test when I was a senior in high school because I knew how to pick up on context clues. I can assure you it was not my math score that helped me out. So who is they and what is this? They are the crowds that had gathered around Peter on Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost was back in May. I don't know if you remember when we celebrated Pentecost. Pentecost is the day that the Spirit of God descended, the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples who were gathered in Jerusalem. And what happens is they begin testifying, and they're so exuberant, and they are so alive with God and with His Spirit that some of the crowds begin to gather around, and they accuse them of being drunk. Which leads to the absolute best defense in all of Scripture. Scripture. Peter's saying, no, we're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. And so what happens is as the crowds have come and the crowds are saying these things, Peter begins to preach. And he preaches this first sermon after, this first sermon there at Pentecost. It's the first sermon that one of Jesus' disciples preaches in the aftermath of Jesus' death and resurrection and the receival of the Holy Spirit. And what Peter does is he, he lays out the Gospel. So that's who the they are. The they are the crowds. They are there listening to Peter. And the this is the Gospel. Is, is Peter setting out Using Scripture, he starts with the prophet Joel, and using Scripture, expounds and exposits on Scripture until the people understand what's happening. So that's this. That's who they are, and that's what this is. So when the crowds heard the gospel, they were pierced to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, what should we do? You know, it's important here as we, as we read Scripture and we see these things. You know, when I said Peter starts with the prophet Joel and tells them the Gospel. And that passage that I read from a few chapters later that I, I read from the baptismal this morning Where does Philip start? Philip doesn't start in Joel, right? He starts in Isaiah. And gives the Gospel to the Ethiopian official. They start with Scripture. They start with God's Word. And they start wherever people are. Peter starts in Joel because what the people are seeing is prophecy of Joel come true. They're seeing their sons and their daughters prophesy. They're seeing old men dream dreams. And when the people hear the Word of God, and when they are convicted by it, it pierces their heart. And they turn and they ask that question, brothers, what should we do? It's the same response The Ethiopian official has. The Ethiopian official hears the gospel from Philip. And he says, you know, and he doesn't say, what should I do? He says, here's baptismal waters, what prevents me from being baptized. But it's the same thing. When when people hear the gospel and the gospel pierces their heart, when God calls us to himself, it engenders response in us. And we're left asking the question, what? should we do? There pierced to the heart because the Holy Spirit, which has just been poured out on the disciples, is at work. And so Peter has a twofold answer to this question of, of what should we do? It's twofold. There's two prongs to it. Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Note the order of these. Repentance is first. Baptism that comes before baptism, before repentance isn't baptism. It's just getting wet. There are an awful lot of people who are walking around in our community and who are walking around in our world because they were baptized. Maybe they were baptized as a believer. Maybe they were baptized as an infant. But at some point in their life, some part of their body got wet, it was called baptism, and they think they're good. But there has been no repentance. We don't, we don't really practice rebaptism. I know some folks do. I don't, because there's one baptism. There's a baptism that comes after repentance. Now I'm here to tell you, if you were six, seven, 20, 60 years old and you received baptism, but there was no repentance of before that, you, brother or sister, you were not baptized. You got wet. Repentance is first. It's a necessary component to baptism. But this is also, this is one of those scriptures that we as Baptists look to where we get this distinctive of believer's baptism. Now we have brothers and sisters and they are, they are Christians. I believe that they are Christians. It would be awkward if I didn't, considering one of them is my father-in-law but they're pastors or, or, or people who attend other churches, and they, and they practice infant baptism. They, they baptize babies. But even with those children, and even in those traditions, there's a moment in which they say, you become responsible for your own faith. But as Baptists, we look here and we see that repentance is not to follow Baptism. Baptism is not to something that happen when you are little, and repentance is to something that comes on maybe years later, but the repentance is to come first. And it's really hard for a oh, let's just say twelve week old. I don't know where I came up with that number, to repent of his sins. I would offer that even for a seven or eight or nine-year-old, it's hard to have repentance, to understand the totality and the gravity of the sin that is on them and the role that it plays. See, that as Baptists, we believe that you have to repent in order to be baptized. Baptized. I was at a conference one time. And this man who had been held up as a denominational leader, was there and was speaking, and he had spent most of his career as an education minister in Baptist churches. And he told the story that I think that we were all supposed to think was really funny. And it was about the time that this mother called him and said, I need you to sit down with little Johnny because he's ready to be baptized. And so he called little Johnny in and little Johnny came into his office and sat in his office and little Johnny was about seven or eight. And this man proceeded to ask little Johnny basic questions of faith. And through that conversation, it became very clear that little Johnny didn't have belief. It became very clear that little Johnny was in that office because little Johnny's mother decided that he was seven years old and it was time for him to be baptized. And so when the meeting was over and the mother is sitting outside in the area outside of His office and they come out and she goes, Well, did he pass? I hope he's passed because I've already called the caterer. See, for her, it wasn't about repentance. It wasn't about new life. It was about a social significant event that needed to be commemorated by the hiring of a caterer and the inviting of relatives in from out of town. And if that was the story, that would be troubling enough. But the story continues. And this man, this minister, this person who was lifted up as a as a leader in denominational life said, Well, there's still some stuff we need to work out, but we'll go ahead and do it. Little Johnny is now left with the impression that he's a baptized believer. Now, I heard this story about 10 years ago. And the story itself had taken place about 10 or 15 years before that. So little Johnny is a young adult now, out in the world, who when asked the question, are you a Christian, can respond with, oh yeah, I was baptized when I was seven years old. But there's no repentance. What comes after repentance and baptism? Peter tells the crowd, repent and be baptized each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but there are days that I need the Holy Spirit. And there are days that sometimes the Holy Spirit tries to hold me back and I I get in its way. It happens a lot in grocery store parking lots and on I-95. I don't take kindly when you try and run me off the road and don't let me merge into traffic. The Holy Spirit was not in the car with me at that time. Actually, the Holy Spirit was in the car with me at that time. hit me around the head, and I just ignored it. But brothers and sisters, I do not know how I would do this thing called life if I did not have the Holy Spirit. I don't know how I would get up in the morning if I didn't have the Holy Spirit. Yesterday was a rough day for a lot of us. And I'm sure somebody at some point yesterday asked you the question, where were you when? I was a freshman in college. For the only time my freshman year, I got up early and was taking a shower before class. And I came in, back into our dorm room, and my roommate had the TV turned on as he did every morning. And I walked back into the room in just as the second plane hit the second tower. I was a freshman in college. And in three or four hours, everything that I had planned about my life changed. Many of us were sort of confronted with the true face of evil for the first time in a long time on that Tuesday morning 20 years ago. And there have been many days since that if it was not for the Holy Spirit, I don't think I would have been able to get up. Because I wake up in the morning and I'm reminded of the brokenness and the sin and the death and the evil that holds sway in this world. I don't know how many of you have ever had the experience of worshiping with a predominantly African-American congregation. I was for several years a member of a predominantly African-American Baptist congregation in my hometown. And one of the things that I absolutely love about that tradition is that when you ask somebody on Sunday morning, how are you doing this morning? The response is, well, God got me out of bed this morning. We would do well to remember that it's God and the Holy Spirit that gets us out of bed in the morning. It's a gift to us. When we repent, and believe and are baptized the Holy Spirit. See, this is a promise. This is a promise that Peter has just made. If you repent and you be baptized, you will receive the Holy Spirit. And he continues in verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. We talked last week about about the fact that Jesus' blood on the cross instituted a new covenant. That we are covenant people, just like God's people before us who who were under first the covenant of Abraham and then the covenant of Moses. We are a covenant people. And in the covenant people, there are promises that are made, right? That's how happens at Sinai. When God enters into covenant with his people, he makes promises, they make promises, His promise to them is, I am the Lord your God, and I will protect you. I brought you out of Egypt. I will rescue and redeem you. And their promises are, we will worship you as if you were the Lord our God who has rescued and redeemed us. And this is how we're going to do it. That's where we get the law. That's the covenant promise. When we stand up here and and I solemnize a, a marriage, that's a covenant promises that are made to each other. Many of you are in a covenant because you are married or have been. And you made promises to your spouse. What? That you would love, honor, and keep them? In sickness and in health? For richer, for poor, forsaking all others? Until death do you part? Or if you're like me, for richer, eh, and for poorer. Even at my wedding, I had to get a laugh. That's a covenant, right? You're making promises to each other. So Peter is reminding them of the covenant and the covenant promise. And he's saying, here's this promise that you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Now let's remember, who is it that Peter's speaking to? He is speaking to the Jewish people who are gathered in Jerusalem for a religious festival. That is who his primary audience is at this moment. And he's saying it's going to be for you and your children. They know that. They've heard that before. When God makes covenant with Abraham, that's the covenant He makes, right? He makes covenant with Abraham for Abraham and for his children. They've heard that before. They know that part. But it's not just for them and their children, but it's for all who are far off. It's for all those who aren't gathered in Jerusalem. In fact, it's for all those who maybe have not yet even heard of our God, those heathen Celtic pagans in the far northeast corner of Europe. Those are my people. Or those those people on the other direction in Asia maybe are following Hinduism or Buddhism or Shinto. Peter's saying the promise is for them too. This is the first time we see in Scripture that Jesus wasn't going to be just the Messiah for the Jewish people, but rather the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Anointed, the Savior for all people. Yes, yes, you and your children but also for those who are far off. God is expanding His kingdom. He's expanding His people. We talk about that. We talked about that last week. How Christ's blood, that new covenant, grafted us into this new covenant. We are grafted into God's people. Adopted as His sons and daughters. And this, this is Peter making that promise. We have... We've got other great testimony to this in Scripture, but this is Peter on the first day of the church saying that those who want to come and be a part of this covenant community don't have to be of a certain tribe, a certain language, a certain family. Not even the family of Abraham. But that it's for all the people. That that God is calling the Jews, but He's calling the Gentiles too. See, the waters of baptism are this great equalizer. In Galatians, Paul tells us this. Remember this? In chapter 3, there are no what? Jew or Greek? Slave or free? Male or female? Why? Because we are all one in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, after baptismal water, there's no rich or poor. There's no North Carolinians and South Carolinians. There are no Southerners and Yankees. There's no black, white, or Indian. There's no UNC or Duke or NC State or Wake. Those distinctions For inside the church are washed away by the blood of Christ and the waters of baptism. The only connection that matters is the blood of Christ. Because Christ died for all equally. I think sometimes there are some who have thought that Christ's blood washes some cleaner than others. Peter's telling them this is for you and your children, but it's also for those who aren't a whole lot like you. Because it's going to be for all of those whom God calls. Note that God's doing the calling. We have this idea that we can do something, that we can earn our salvation, but it's God that does all the work. It's even He that does the calling. Without Him and the intervention of His Holy Spirit, we are totally lost In our sin. We don't even know what direction to move in to get ourselves unlost. But God calls us, and by this grace, we are able to come to him. Peter continues on. The scripture tells us that he has many more words. By many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. Repent and be baptized, be saved from this corrupt generation. You know, I think sometimes we don't want to do that. We don't want to to call out be saved from this corrupt generation. And we could all say it, because here's the clue. All generations are corrupt. I hate to break it to you. As much as I would like to believe that there is something deeply wrong with the Zoomers. They are no more corrupt than my generation of the millennials who are no more corrupt than the Gen Xers, who are no more corrupt than the baby boomers, who are no more corrupt than the silent generation, who are no more corrupt than the greatest generation, who are no more corrupt than the generation that came before them. Because sin invades us all sin pollutes us all sin twists us all sin condemns us all and sin enslaves us all there is no avoiding it there is no salvation from it apart from god's grace and the blood of his son there's a sign that's up on a church around here and you may have seen it and i don't normally do this but man this really got me twisted this sign says, the praying man ceases to sin. Bunk. Bunk. That's a lie. That's an abomination. We are all sinners. There is no man or woman, praying or not, who is without sin. Only Jesus is without sin. And when bad, twisted theology gets out there into the public, it can lead you to believe that you are better than everybody else, that you are perfect, that you have no need for God, that by your own righteousness, you have been saved. Because you get down on your knees and you pray to God. Only Jesus saves us not the work of our own hand. Only Jesus saves us, not the work of our own hand. Only Jesus saves us, not the work of our own hand. And we memorize that, and we memorialize that, and we commemorate that in the waters of baptism. Repent and be baptized. When we are baptized, we die to ourselves and to our sin, and we are raised in the newness of life in Christ. And from that moment, it's no longer about us, but about God, because God will not be second. There's more to this story. There's more to my sermon, but I want to stop here, and I want to stop with this. If you do not know Jesus... If you have never repented and believed, you have the opportunity to do that each and every day. You have the opportunity to do that right now. Stop buying into the lie that it's about you and about what you can do and about what God can do for you. And allow Jesus to save you. Allow Jesus to call you to Himself. We're going to have our hymn of commitment here. It's going to be Just as I Am. When we first